Heavenly Father and Lord, I thank you, God, for the fact that you love us and that you pursue us, that you go after us, and that you did not allow us to remain dead in our trespasses and dead in our sin, but that you would do everything that it takes for us to be reconciled to you. So, Lord, understanding that, it's, it's easy and it's joyful to sing the words that we have just sung, Lord. I thank you for the truth of what we find in your scriptures. I thank you that we get to come together now and we get to allow you to focus our minds and our hearts on what you've said in your word. Lord, we know, you know, there are many things that are distracting us and are working to take our attention away. Things going on in our family, things going on in the workplace, things going on in our checkbook, and all these things are pulling us and they're, they're trying to drag us away from what you've said in your word. So right now, Lord, I pray, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in such a way that we can just see what you've said to us, that our lives would be changed. I also pray for Dr. Strand as he preaches the word and that uh, your Holy Spirit would fill him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. It's been a great weekend for me, at least. I can't speak for the people who endured seven hours of my teaching uh, over the course of Friday night and Saturday morning. But I had a great time, and in all seriousness, it was great to be with uh, the people of this church. Great questions were asked, really uh, uh, thoughtful, tough questions in some cases were asked after I would present. And so uh, I love talking about gender and sexuality matters. Um, and so I really appreciate Josh uh, having me out. It's been a real blessing, and thank you to the worship team for leading us uh, so well. So it's, uh, it's great to be with you this morning, and uh, I want to ask you, though, as we begin, uh, what, I, I want to ask you this question, what item of clothing or what kind of possession would symbolize a generation? Okay, so I want you to be thinking about this in, in terms of generations. So for our grandparents... Um, the possession that might symbolize an entire generation could be could be a helmet. You think about World War II. You think about how Western civilization was saved by, uh, in many cases, our grandfathers and kept running in American terms by our grandmothers. So you think about the sacrifices that were made right in the, by the greatest generation, as they're sometimes called, in terms of uh, uh, preserving freedom throughout the world, uh, beating back tyranny. For our parents' generation, so now we're jumping up one, uh, the item of clothing or the possession that could symbolize a generation is bell-bottom jeans. The hippies, you know, they wanted peace, freedom, and a life without rules, but their most enduring legacy may be flared jeans. So the bell-bottom jean might symbolize that generation. What about this generation? What about my generation? What about younger people today? What's the item that symbolizes us? It could possibly be a smartphone, maybe an iPhone, perhaps, maybe, yeah, everybody's on their device, okay, you've seen this before, I think, or perhaps it is something else, perhaps it is a plush, comfortable, velvet-like item of clothing, the Snuggie, <laughs> the Snuggie, think about it, the Snuggie is, is soft, is comfortable, you put it on and all the cares of the world disappear, right? You've seen these commercials for the Snuggie, you know, people sort of laying back in their easy chair like this with a, enveloped by a Snuggie. I have no problem personally with the Snuggie. In fact, if you would like to donate a Snuggie for me for my ride back to Kansas City, I, I'm a seminary professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I teach uh, systematic theology there 
And, uh, and so I have a, a ride back today, and if you want to donate a Snuggie, I will take one, in fact. They are very comfortable. But that's not what I'm here to preach to you about. I'm not here to preach to you the merits of the Snuggie, okay? So sorry if you were getting ramped up for that kind of sermon. I am here to talk about, in all seriousness, what our generation, what the younger generation wants. And I think you see something with this idea of Snuggie faith. We want a Jesus today. This is true not just of young people. Many of us are tempted to want a Jesus who is safe, who is tame, who's comfortable, who doesn't really disturb our life very much. Snuggy faith is all too common today. The Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, including Southern Baptists, that's, that's my denomination and, and yours, I believe, we're sending fewer missionaries to the field. We are witnessing the spread of what is called the new atheism, the rise of new atheism. We're hearing all sorts of reports around the world about radical Islam, right? We're hearing these things. And it can feel for you and me like this is a scary world. It's a scary world. And what we need is a Jesus who tucks us in at night and keeps us safe. A Jesus who never asks us to do something that would be too hard to imagine. Who doesn't ask us, you could say, to risk But here's the thing I want us to see from Scripture this morning. The Bible offers us something way better than comfortable Christianity. There's nothing wrong with enjoying comfort. There's nothing wrong with being happy. There's nothing wrong with, as I say, fleece-lined blankets. But the Bible offers us something better than comfort. The Bible offers us the opportunity, in the name of Jesus Christ himself, to truly live. To gain eternal life, there's just one thing you and I have to do. We have to risk everything. We have to risk it all. And we find this truth in the scripture itself. Turn with me, if you will, or open up on your Bible app, whatever it may be. They're all equal. To Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. This is often called the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents. Read with me, starting in Matthew 25, verse 14. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, The master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? 
Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look into this passage, I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truths that are here for our good and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. I want to briefly walk through the teaching of this passage with you. We see, first of all, that slaves could have great authority over possessions in the ancient Near Eastern world. This is a first century story told by Jesus Christ himself to his disciples, and he's using familiar themes to make his, his spiritual lesson intelligible to his people. So he's picturing a kind of uh, household economy in which a master has uh, great possessions and has servants or slaves who are working for him, and this master goes away on a long journey. This is a parable that's coming near the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew, of course, is one of the four gospels of the New Testament. And Matthew is just about to picture Jesus going to the cross. So this is one of the last parables or stories that Jesus teaches before he goes to the cross to die on it for sinners. So Jesus is offering teaching here that attempts to summarize what the kingdom of God is like. How should you understand, in other words... Life as a servant of Jesus. What does it mean? What, what are your priorities as a follower of Jesus? How are you supposed to order and ordain your life? What are you supposed to do as a Christian? What do Christians do? This is actually a very practical parable. It's a, it's a beautiful teaching because it helps us understand in a very simple way what it looks like to follow Jesus in a fallen world. Now, we should recognize, as I say, that this is a story. So this isn't a a, a blow-by-blow historical account. This is, in other words, a tale that Jesus is effectively telling his people so that he can illustrate spiritual truths for them. And in this story, we see that uh, we are to be understood as the ones who have possession of the treasure of the master who has gone away. So Jesus is, in fact, teaching about himself. He is just about to go to the cross, right? And then he's going to be resurrected, as we sung about, powerfully. And then Jesus is going to go away for a long time. And that's where Jesus, in fact, is. Right now, at this very moment, on Sunday morning in 2016, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. He is not walking the earth somewhere. He's not in a geographical location. He is to be found in the heavens at the right hand of God the Father. But we have possession of his treasure. The treasure that we should understand, spoken of here is the good news of the gospel. This is primarily, preeminently, what Jesus has given to his church. You see this in Matthew 28, just a few chapters later, just before Jesus is about to ascend to God the Father, he commissions his church to preach the good news in his name, to tell everybody that he has died on the cross and risen from the grave to forgive sinners and give them eternal life. So, this is, this is the property, verse 14, that we have been entrusted with. We see in this parable that talents are no small matter. So you see this in verse 15. Look there with me. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability. So we recognize here that in this story, the master is giving his servants 
oversight of tremendous value. Talents are no small matter. A talent, uh, in terms of the first century, was worth about 20 years' wages. So perhaps a million dollars would be the value of just one talent. So one servant, in other words, gets $5 million worth of property to steward for the master. Another gets $2 million, and even the servant who gets just one has a million dollars worth of property, 20 years' wages, according to New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. And so these servants are supposed to take these talents and in some way that isn't exactly spelled out, invest them, make more of them. That's what the master says to his servants. And that is exactly what you see the first servant doing. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five more. And the servant who has two does the same thing. So what is taking place here is that there is market exchange in some way in terms that we can understand. In modern America, we have a stock market, we have investments in these sorts of things, and we try to do these kind of things when we can. We recognize that these servants are doing something very similar to what many people try to do today. They're investing this capital that the master has given. In verse 19, you see that after a long time, the master returns. So here is where there's not going to be any more investing of the talents, right? That has already taken place. The one who had five went at once and made five more. But that time for investing and growing the talents is over. Now the master has come back to settle accounts. And the five-talent servant, the one who has been bold to try and make more, is the one who comes forward first. When the master comes in verse 20, this servant is very glad to be back in the master's presence. Why? Because boldness begets boldness. This servant has been bold in the name of his master, and so he's not afraid when the master comes back. And the same thing is true, verses 21 to 23, for the two-talent servant. He, too, comes forward. He's glad to see the master back. He's been trying to work with the talents that have been given him. He's, he's been trying, we would say in, a, in spiritual senses, he's been trying to invest the teaching of God, the gospel of God given him, in order to be faithful to the master. And the master is very pleased with his servants. Some of the most famous words in the Bible are recorded in this parable. Did you know this? Well done, good and faithful servant. We frequently talk about hearing that from our Lord when he returns. They're found in the parable of the talents in terms of market exchange. Isn't that interesting? So the master is well pleased with the first and the second servants. He's very happy with them because they've been faithful to invest, to use, to put to work these talents. But then the parable takes a turn. In verse 24, the third servant accuses the master. He accuses him. This kind, gracious master who has returned, who had entrusted to the third servant, just like the other two, his property. Here's what the third servant says. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. It's accusing him. This is an ungrateful employee, uh, to be sure. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. In essence, what this third servant is saying is, I was afraid of you. You're fearsome. Uh, you're not a very kind man. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Verse 25, here you have what is yours. So he did not invest it. He did not trade it. He did not bring it to the market. He didn't make anything more. 
He hid out. The third servant was afraid of the master and afraid of the big bad world, and so he was on his heels. And the master has a very strong response for the third servant. Verse 26, his master answers him, you wicked and slothful servant. So the master does not simply say, oh, that's too bad. Well, I guess we missed an opportunity to together make some capital here, invest you know, this precious talent. No, instead, as you see in verses 27 to 30, this servant is judged. Cast the worthless servant, verse 30, into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This passage sets all of our lives, because we are just servants of the master, okay? We're just servants of Jesus Christ, who right now, in the 21st century, is not here, but who is very soon returning. We know this. We know this in the book of Revelation. We know this from 1 Thessalonians and other texts, right? Jesus is going to come back. Right now is the time to work. Right now is the time to take the precious material Jesus has given it, the gospel of grace, and, and bring it to all the world and call sinners to repentance in the name of Jesus Christ and build into our families and try to strengthen local churches just like this. Now is the time to work, right? Now is the time to work. So this passage sets all of our lives in an end times kind of framework. We see, in other words, what I mean by that is we're supposed to be living with the end of all things on our mind. We're not supposed to live, in other words, like so many people in this world live. So many people in this world live as if now is all that matters, right? You can look around you. You have friends. You have neighbors. You have family members who have some form of that kind of philosophy that they live by. They're living for now. They're living it up. Uh, Why not have fun? Uh, right now, because soon we're going to die. I mean, that's a, that's a very operative philosophy in our world. Many people live by that. They don't necessarily use the fancy term philosophy to describe it. They just live it out. But Jesus sets the Christian life in a very different framework. As Christians, we can't just live it up now as if there's no tomorrow. We recognize that tomorrow is coming, that Jesus will return. Mark your calendar by that. Jesus is coming back. And that frames every minute of your life. That means that every minute of your life, you want to take the good news God has given you and the grace by which God has claimed you, and you want to invest it wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever work God gives you to do. This is a parable, brothers and sisters, that enfranchises the whole church right? There's three servants mentioned here. They don't all have the same gifting level. They, don't, they aren't all given the same amount of talents. But all three of them are called in the same manner to invest, to be a worker in God's kingdom. And the same is true for you. You, no matter what vocation you have, no matter what calling you have, no matter what you do eight to five, Monday to Friday, you are given the same commission. This is incredible. This is really exciting for us. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ gives everybody a purpose, gives every life meaning. Everyone who knows Jesus as Savior has a kingdom to serve, has a king to work for. This is incredible news. We're not free agents. We're not isolated. We're not on our own in the world. We have a master to serve, and he is a good master. This is the thing. If we are even just a little bit faithful by his power and by his grace, he will reward us to the uttermost. He will give us eternal life with him. What a God this is. 
This is the God we always seek in our sin but cannot find. So, having walked through the basic steps of this passage, here's what I want to do with you in the brief time that remains. I want to give you, I want to give you six takeaways from this passage that frames how the Christian should think about life and ministry as a result of the parable of the talents, as this section is often called. Here's our first takeaway. I think that this parable teaches that your life is to be lived all out. Your life is to be lived all out for the glory of God. Here's what your life purpose is. If you didn't know what it was, if you felt like only pastors and missionaries did meaningful work in the name of Jesus Christ, I have glorious news for you. Your life is about making more talents. Your life is about going at once and giving glory to your great God. That's what it's all about. You have your own little niche of the world. I have my own tiny little niche, little corner of the world where I have influence. You know, we often think of influence as only big, only, I don't know, Justin Bieber with... 90 million Twitter followers or whatever he has. Only, only he can influence people or something like this. Only an American president can influence people. That's the, that's the way many of us think. But it's not true. Influence, in many cases, is very small. Think about, uh, for many of us, our families. Think about the school you went to. Think about the neighbors who shaped you. Think about the friends you've had over the years who have had a role in your life. Do they, in many cases, have a megaphone by which to speak to all the universe, all the world? In many cases, they simply spoke into your life. They were humble, simple people. That's what most of us are. But we, we influence one another for good. We have that opportunity. We have that, that uh, potential for joy. So God wants all of us to participate in this kingdom enterprise of making more talents, of giving God more glory in the world. The world does not have too much glory of God. There's not too much God in the world. Did you know this? There's too little God in the world. God wants there to be more God in the, wo- in the world. God wants there to be more glorification of his name in all the places of the earth. That is what God is in the business of doing, spreading the fame of his name over all the earth. There's not too little God. There's nobody out there who has too much God. Ah, I'm sorry, I just can't consume more God. I can't take in more scripture. I can't listen to more good Christian songs. I can't pray more. I've, I've hit my limit. My tank is full. No one qualifies in those terms. All of us are in the business and the mission of bringing God to all the world. So this means that we have to live all out. Number two, you can only live this life when you recognize that life is not about Safety. It's not about safety. This is how we're tempted to think. Every one of us is tempted to think this. And safety is no bad thing. I don't think this parable calls us to ask for persecution. I don't think this parable is asking us, you know, to be smacked in the face as a Christian. That's not what we're saying. But we are saying that if we're going to honor our master in a way that is faithful to this parable, we have to be like the first servant, the five-talent servant. Verse 15 We have to be the one who's given five talents, and then verse 16 goes at once, at once. I think this whole parable is in part an explication of those two words, at once. We want an at-once kind of faith. We want a faith that is not afraid to put things on the line in the name of Jesus Christ. What are we so tempted by? I'm tempted by this, I'm guessing. Uh, You're tempted by this as well. We're tempted to think, I'll do it tomorrow. 
I should really begin that evangelistic conversation with my family members. I know that that would be a good thing to do, but mm, I'll do it tomorrow. I don't want to do it today. Uh, I should really gather the family, and we should probably read the Bible together and pray over the Bible and start doing that in our family life, but mm, I don't really want to do that today. I'm too tired. I don't want to do that. You know, my wife and I, we should really begin talking through our marriage and not just assuming that it's, it's working great, but we should actually try to talk through if there are ways we can strengthen this marriage and I can love her better and I can put sin to death and she can do the same. I don't really want to do that today. I don't want to go at once to honor my master. We can be tempted, all of us, me just like you, toward a we'll do it tomorrow kind of faith. Here's what this parable calls us to. This parable calls us to have an at-once kind of faith. We need wisdom in our lives. Of course, we have to sort things through. Sometimes a conversation gets shut down, for example. But we want to recognize that life is not fundamentally about being safe. The five-talent servant put his gifts to work. He went after it for the glory of the master. And that's the kind of perspective we need as Christians as well. Number three, along those lines, we're going to be happiest when we're living for something big. You're going to be happiest when you're living for something big. The movie Interstellar, uh, a few years ago, put this into words. Matthew McConaughey's character says this, we used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. In other words, we used, to, we used to want to dream big. And this is true, not simply of Christianity, but of the space program. The space program used to help us dream big. But the space program has fallen on hard times in America. But it's much more significantly true for Christians. We, we used to dream big. We used to want to attempt to do grand things in the name of God. But this, this age, this secular age, where Christian faith and Christian sexual ethics are not popular, are not in vogue, makes us want to be back on our heels, makes us want to shut the door and lock it and just hunker down. The world seems big and bad and scary, and it's easy in such times to hide out. But I think this parable, and I think the scripture more broadly, calls us to live for something big. I, I've talked about this over the course of the weekend with the folks who came to deeper sessions, but I also want to say it here. This is true, I think, for young men. I think you see this especially for young men today. Our culture is teaching us to, to think that young men are going to do best when we sort of relax expectations on them, when we don't put too much on their shoulders. I think what young men in many cases actually desperately need is a challenge. They need to be called to a higher standard. They need, be, they need to be told that they can grow, they can change, they can become something greater than you are. You think of the American experience of sports. You know, it's not easy necessarily to advance as a football player, a basketball player, but what do, you, what do you gain when you go to summer football camp or basketball camp? I remember, I remember very well going to basketball camp many summers in Maine. And what would we hear? We would hear these speeches about how we could grow, we could get better, we could improve. We, you know, there'd be athletes in the state of Maine. Now, we didn't produce many great athletes, let that be said. Okay. Um, yeah, we, we had a few, you know, Division I athletes and that sort of thing. But we didn't produce the superstars necessarily in my state, but that's okay. We won hockey championships. Does anybody care about hockey? Okay, nobody cares about that. Thank you. All right. Well, it's been good being with you. Uh, no, I'm just joking. We, we would hear, you know, about a local, a local boy made good, and we, we would have this, 
this figure, this athletic figure lifted up before us as a goal to strive for. We need this in the church. We want young men to strive for something. We want to call young men to something. We don't want to just assume they're going to muddle their way through and maybe pick up the cues they're supposed to pick up. We want to train and invest in the next generation, guy and girl alike, right? We want to do this. We can't assume that our our kids are just going to get it naturally. We have to call Christians of all kinds, of all genders, of all ages, we have to call them to a greater standard. We have to recognize that when we have a grand goal in front of us, that's when our life is going to be most worth living. Toward that end, number four, takeaway four, we need to start building stuff. We need to start building stuff. The faithful servants in this parable honor the Lord, honor the master by economic activity. They build something. They take talents and they get more. And that's a picture of spiritual investment. We want to build something as Christians. We don't simply just want to get through the day. That's not our goal. That's that's good. It's good to get through the day. Sometimes that's all you can do. But our bigger goal as believers is by the power of the gospel in us, by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in every believer, every minute of their life, we want to do things like build our faith, not in our own strength, but we want, in other words, we want a devotional walk with the Lord God. We want a, we want a prayer life, a close prayer life with God. We don't want to just check a, a Christian box. We want to draw near to the Lord so that he will draw near to us, James 4. We want to build a vocation. I want to encourage you to think of whatever gifts and abilities and talents you have been given, not just as things that can help you earn a paycheck, but as things that give God glory. God has given every single Christian unique gifts, unique abilities to use for his glory. Those are not the same thing, but I would encourage you not simply to punch the clock, but to build a vocation. See that as a good thing. Where are you going? Where are you headed? What's your plan? It's good to have a plan. It's good to have a plan for your life. If you're called to marriage, thirdly, get ready for marriage. Spend less time worrying about your marital status and spend more time praying and preparing for it. You want to pray about it a good bit. You want to pray for a godly spouse. You don't expect to just bump into them somewhere, right? And you want to prepare for marriage as best you can. You want to build out your body. (laughs) You want to invest your body. You want to steward your body Well, your body is a gift of God to you, right? So you don't want to treat it like it's, you know, just a a bunch of atoms and molecules that don't matter. You want to to build out a, a healthy life, really. In terms of a family, you want to build your family. If God gives you this privilege, you want to build it out. You want a godly family. People used to want a godly family. We now think in America, or at least we hear, that the childless marriage is best. Now, of course, there are some couples who struggle to conceive. That's not what I'm talking about. Time magazine, they'll put on the cover, childless couples who choose to forego building a family and having kids so that they can focus on, you know, I don't know, travel, vacation, you know, uh, sitting in the pool, going on whatever trips they want to do. And we have a different vision of life. We recognize Psalm 127, that children are a gift from the Lord. We recognize that it's a blessing when there are arrows in the quiver, so to speak, according to that psalm. So we want to build our family. Not every family is going to be the same size. I'm not saying that. I'm not coming here to heap shame on people. I'm just trying to say we have a different value, don't we, than, than the world. We want to build something. We want to invest something. We want to call young men, for example, to want to be a dad 
to want to be a godly father. What an honorable role. Now young men want to be a celebrity. They want to be an Instagram star. They want to be on Snapchat. We as the church are a different culture. We're a counterculture created by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have different priorities in the world. We want to call young men to see the honorable nature of being a husband, a father, a worker in God's kingdom, a man who serves the church. That's what is truly impressive in God's sight, not having your name on social media. What's impressive in God's sight is being a man or being a woman to the glory of God. We want to call our girls to different values. We want want them to see that their worth is not found in being sexually attractive and being desirable or in conquering men, being in some kind of zero-sum competition with men, but in loving what the Bible loves. We want to call them to that. We want them to see the beauty of motherhood, the beauty of being a wife, the beauty of being a worker in God's kingdom. We want them to see these things. We want them to see the beauty of the Proverbs 31 woman who has tremendous agency in the name of Jesus Christ. We are a counter culture in the name of Jesus. We want to serve our church. We want to build our church. I've already observed you know, numerous people plugging in to this church this morning. That's what you see in, in, in healthy churches. All sorts of people serving in all sorts of ways, not necessarily you know, taking the mic and saying, just so everybody knows, I just swept the floor. Just so everybody knows, I brought these donuts. You know, that's not what we do in the church, right? A lot of our service in the name of Jesus Christ is humble and anonymous, but it's worth it. God will reward you for that service. God will reward you for building into this local church. God will reward you, I believe, for joining a church and serving it, not just coming, you know, odd, odd weekends, that sort of thing, but joining the church, joining arms with the body of believers who love Christ and love God the Father, love God the Holy Spirit, and serving it and strengthening it. The incredible thing about the local church is that you don't need to be the preaching pastor to serve the church meaningfully. You only need to be gripped by grace and have a willingness to serve, and God will put you to work. Isn't that a beautiful thing? So I think By extension of this parable, this is the kind of life God calls us to, a big God kind of vision, a life where we build things and invest in things. Point five, we're going to go rapidly to the end here. Remember this, like the third servant teaches us in this parable, sin is always going to let you down. It's always going to let you down. Sin leaves the third servant condemned, wasted, and judged. And God will judge all those who do not call on the name of Jesus Christ in salvation. He will punish eternally in hell by his own wrath. That's the bad news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to face that wrath. We don't have to face this this God terrible in his judgment. We can trust in the name of Jesus Christ and be saved from hell through Christ, believing in his name, repenting in his name, trusting in his death and his resurrection for our salvation, our satisfaction. But sin, brothers and sisters, sin is always going to let you down. You don't have to work at being a sinner. You know this? You you didn't say to your spouse, you didn't say to your dad or your mom, you didn't say to your friends recently this week, I have had such a hard time not reading the Bible. I am having such a hard time watching TV shows and movies and stuff like this that I shouldn't watch. I just can't muster up the energy to sin. It comes naturally to me to sin. It comes naturally to you and me to fall prey to temptation. As a Christian, we have a new name. We have a new nature. We're a new creation. We know this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. But Colossians 3 indicates that we still have to put off the old man. We have to put to death sin. If you're on your heels, if you're not focused as a Christian, this happens for all of us, 
we need to know that sin will get us. Sin is on the hunt for you. In Genesis 4, the Lord says to Cain, who's just about to kill his brother Abel, sin is crouching against you. Brothers and sisters, I think the, th- the same thing is probably true for us. We know that Satan is a roaring lion. So, so just know this. Satan would love to help you sin. So here's what you have to do. You have to play offense against sin and Satan. You have to fight back against sin. You have to build out godly habits by the power of Christ in you. You want a home that is flourishing in Jesus. So point six, last point of these takeaways from, I think, this parable. We don't need something to live for. We need something, we need something to die for. Too many Christians have something to live for. It's, you know, we, we have a little spiritual lifesaver to get us through the day. That's what we need. No, we need something awesome. We need a great God. We need a big vision of God. We need a master like the one in this talent who is coming back. He's coming back for his people. He's going to rescue his people. He's going to judge and destroy his enemies. It's a good thing that God will judge sin. It's a good thing that he will destroy evil. We don't want evil to continue into all eternity. We want it destroyed. We want all the wicked things, including wicked things that have been done to you, to end, to cease. And the good news is this. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is not a tame lion. Jesus is not boring or quiet. Jesus is going to return, and he is going to bring his people to himself, and he has given us work to do now before he returns. I want to close with a story of a, a boy named Glenn Cunningham. He's a Kansas farm boy. He was going to school in Kansas, a one-room schoolhouse in the early 20th century, when all of a sudden his one-room schoolhouse blew up. It blew up. Somebody had, had put the wrong material into the, the heater for the school. And the doctors uh, had to treat many of the children, of course, in this school, including Glenn, and they recommended amputating Glenn's legs because uh, his, his legs were in such rough shape that, that he was told he would never walk again. But here's the thing. He was on the operating table, and Glenn Cunningham screamed. He screamed at the doctors not to amputate his legs. He's just a little boy, but he was so strong in how he reacted to this news that they didn't. They didn't amputate. It took him months lying on his back to recover, lying on his back day after day, really tough. But then he told himself he was going to learn to walk. Here's what he did. He got a horse and he would rest his arms on the horse and walk behind the horse step by step until he could walk. But he didn't stop there. Then he decided he was going to learn to run again. So he got his horse and he started trotting. He started galloping a little bit, and he learned eventually to run, but he didn't stop there. Then he decided he was going to run in the Olympics, and he kept training and training, and here's the end story of Glenn Cunningham. In 1936 in Berlin, the Berlin Olympics, he took silver in the 1500 meters. In 1938, he set a world record in the indoor mile, 404. This boy, whose legs should have been cut off set a world record that stood for years in the mile. Why do I raise Glenn Cunningham? Because like him, you and I may face serious circumstances. We may have people opposing us. We may feel that the world is pressing in on us. But if we will call on the power of the Spirit who indwells us, if we will call on the name of Jesus Christ, he will give us victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. He will give us something better than snuggy faith. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this promise. I thank you for this parable that we might pass over, Lord, frankly, and, and not see what it's teaching us. Lord, I pray that we will be like this faithful servant who went at once and made more talents in the name of his master. I pray that this church will carry out this mission and be fruitful and faithful in Jefferson City, and you'll use it very powerfully to rescue sinners and to strengthen Christians in the name of Christ. We pray all these things in his strong, strong name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Strand, for that text and um, for, the, for the word that God has given you. And I trust that God is going to use that to bless you and to leave, uh, to, to, to change you so that we go out into the world understanding um, what God has for us. We now turn to a time um, where we give you an opportunity to worship the Lord through giving. Um, I'm going to read for you in just a second from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, and I will read verses 14 through 15. Paul writing to the church at Corinth. He says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. When we get to this point in our weekly gathering on the Lord's Day where we pass the baskets and we... um, give you an opportunity to give an offering. I want to make something very clear. We don't do this because we need to hit you up to keep the lights on. We do this because we come to texts like this and we see that the gospel has so grabbed our hearts and changed the way that we see the world that we are compelled to allow God to change every part of our life, including the way that we give. That's why. So when we give, when we do place money in the offering baskets, when you go online at freshwaterjc.com and give, when you give at the giving kiosk in the foyer, we don't give as an act of earning God's favor or God's salvation. We give as a response to the grace and the mercy that God has shown us. So when we uh, stand and sing in just a second after I pray, the service hosts are going to come forward and they're going to pass the offering baskets during that song. And if you would like to, to give as an act of worship during that song, we would allow you to do that. So I'll pray for us, and then we will stand and sing together. Heavenly Father and Lord, I thank you, God, for love, and I thank you for the scripture that we've got to look at in um, in your word, and um, I thank you, God, that you haven't given us a snuggy faith, but that you have uh, changed us in every single way, and that we get to, to run into your arms and be received. Now, Lord, as we sing as a response to what you've shown us in your word, and as we give, I pray that you'd be glorified in it. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.